All of those managers used to be everybody else. It's not like they came out of manager training or out of the manager machine. <laughs> One day somebody said, you know what? You've pissed me off less than everybody else on the team. You're a manager now. Welcome to Building Better Games. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of collaboration, what it is, why it matters, and how to create it. Too often, exhausted leaders end up looking around at a ton of incredibly busy coworkers asking, why won't people talk to each other? Why do our processes seem to prevent progress? How can I create a team that can work well together? Joining us is Jim Benson, author of Personal Kanban, and more recently, The Collaboration Equation. Jim has been studying why people struggle to collaborate well for decades and has helped teams across a ton of different industries get the right things done at the right time with less stress. Jim, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. So let's kick off with who are you? Anything more you want to say about your background and anything like that? The important thing for this is that I have been a gamer since, since Pong, so... I, I am part of the, the community, or at least a part of the target community. I have made music since I was a kid as well, and the two aren't dissimilar. Uh, getting together, playing games with people, playing music with people. It's a, a group of folks with a focus, with a desire, wanting to get that work done. So whether I was an angry punk rocker in the middle of Nebraska, or whether I was working as a civil engineer building freeways and subways, most of the failures in any project that I've ever been on have been due to lack of communication, lack of coordination, lack of respect for other people, an overemphasis on deadlines and procedure mm. as opposed to being able to react elegantly to changes in the situation that you're in. I don't think the majority of people would say, well, making music in game development are all in the same kind of basket, but you called that out and I'm like fascinated by that idea. Like what are the like lessons and sort of principles that come out of making music that you feel like are ubiquitous across all these different areas? For the game, I'll use a physical game. So I'll use hockey and the Seattle Kraken. And uh, for music, I will use the police. If people had the opportunity to watch the playoffs in the NHL this year, they scored like 26 goals in their composite games. Wow. But almost every player scored at least one goal. There was no dominant player on the team. You know, there wasn't one person being the team and everybody else backing that person up. So when they're playing that game, those people on that team needed to be extremely aware of where people were, what their skills were, what they would do with the puck when they got it, how much they could count on them, etc. If you listen to any police album and then you go to listen to any solo Sting, Stuart Copeland, Andy, Andy Summers albums, none of their albums sound like the police at all. Like not even slightly not like the police. I mean, maybe maybe Sting because the voice kind of sounds the same. But they, as a group, as a team, brought themselves as individuals into the group to provide value. And the value that they created was above, beyond, and in some ways independent of the people who were actually participating. So their skill sets changed in relation to the skill sets around them. Same thing for, with the Kraken. 
you know, depending on who's on the ice, they're going to play, they're going to play those pucks differently. So that's what I mean, is that the, the collaboration between people is a constant. And when it happens, it feels better than any other human experience. Mm. Yeah. There's also like an honoring of the uncertainty that comes packaged in with like the creative process as well. Mm -hmm. And this is like the antidote in many respects to uncertainty, right? Like through the act of collaboration, you burn down uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I think that relationship is not recognized by a lot of leaders in our industry. I'm curious what you think is going on there. Have you observed that? Like, what do you think people's hangups are with this in general? The question might be, if it feels so good, why isn't everybody doing it? <laughs> yeah, okay. exactly. And so I can point to any high school dance and show you exactly why. <laughs> so there's a lot of things in a high school dance that people want to happen that would feel extremely good. And they're all standing against the walls, scared to approach other people. Not me. <laughs> That's right. Not me. I don't know what you're talking about. So uncertainty is obviously perceived as, as a threat. And then we have different responses to those threats based on not the uncertainty itself, but our understanding of what happens if we act on that in uncertainty. So if the three of us get together and we say, OK, you know what? Anytime something comes up in this coding project that we have where where it feels like it's difficult to code, or we keep having the same type of bugs show up in the same part of the code, or we can't solve this problem. When that happens, somebody should raise their hand and we'll come in and we'll mob on that. So that, that action then says uncertainty isn't something that's feared, it's a state that just requires a different type of work. And almost no one on this planet is trained to do that. Yeah. And just because of the way that we've evolved as a, as a global society, people tend to wait to be trained as opposed to go out and try and figure out ways to train themselves. Mm -hmm. So, I you know, I grew up a angry, not entirely straight kid in the middle of Nebraska. And I knew that if I walked around talking about not being an entirely straight kid, I would get the crap beat out of me. So instead, I became a punk rocker <laughs> so that I could scream about the state and injustice and all of this stuff. So I could scream about those things as a proxy for the thing that I actually wanted to scream about. Mm. Most middle managers have a bunch of things that they would like to see done, but their KPIs are aimed in a different direction. Or maybe they have KPIs from five different vectors and those aren't entirely, you know, coordinate. Mm -hmm. And then they're going back to their teams and saying, damn it, do this, damn it, do that, damn it, do this other thing. And those things have no coherence to the team. And then things start to fall apart. And no one ever raises their hand and says, you know what, manager, it's okay, dude, calm down. Let's get some coffee. We'll sit around and we'll, we'll talk about this. That's heavy. <laughs> like, that's so powerful the way you just described that. And I loved the the image you painted of like a young kid growing up with strong feelings and but it's like the entire operating system around you is functioning one way and you're pissed off with the system from the ground up. But like, how do you push back against the everything machine? 
when you describe it that way, it actually triggers a lot of empathy. I get frustrated with middle managers and managers a lot. I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, you know that this is wrong. Why do you keep doing this? But like, I think you just did such a beautiful job painting a picture of a world where it's easier said than done. Yeah. And, And all of those managers used to be everybody else. Right. It's not like they came out of manager training or out of the manager machine. (laughs) It's just like one day somebody said, you know what? You've pissed me off less than everybody else on the team. You're a manager now. So this actually ties in for me something I was reading today in the book. You said a development in the positive sense in this space was the Andon cord in Mm -hmm. the Toyota production system. And it was this thing that said, you pull this cord, the line stops. And we encourage and incentivize you to pull the cord when you need to immediately. Mm-hmm. More to the point, if you don't pull the cord, then I'm going to kick your butt. Yes, exactly. If we find out three steps down that you saw this and didn't do anything, that's we're going to come back and be like, what happened? Yeah. So you also said in the book that that concept of the end on cord is much less commonly seen in knowledge work. But I, I was wondering if you were also calling out, is there a difference in the type of work that makes that harder to understand? Well, yeah. And, and a lot of it is because in knowledge work, we have tended to isolate people into armies of one, otherwise known as micro silos. And then we've encouraged those people not to talk to each other. This group's working on that. Just wait until they give you a report. This is happening and it's in flight. Just stop asking. We'll get to you on this. And then meanwhile, people are trying to act on a daily basis with a lack of information. And then we've had, let's just say, 100 years to fully internalize this. Right. (laughs) So we got to the real information age, maybe around the 70s. But you had white collar workers in giant buildings in New York and, and Chicago And the little white shirts and black ties, you know, all the way back to the 20s and 10s. So those people have always been encouraged to just do the task and not talk to other people. There's not a lot of examples out there, unfortunately, of groups that get together and as a and collaboratively design a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And this. So there's a thing that uh, Aaron and I have said before, which is the team is the smallest unit that produces value Mm -hmm. is a fundamental paradigm shift that we're trying to have. I think you say something very similarly in the book Mm -hmm. about sort of the, the team is the thing that produces value. I do not view, I think in a, in a footnote, you say something like, I do not believe in solo work. Mm -hmm. Solo work is a myth. And yet it's one that our sort of self-focused pathology deeply encourages is this idea that you need to focus on your work and you Mm -hmm. getting better and all these different things. And there's like this sort of weird negative truth that sounds good and all this different thing, but it's stuck inside of a frame that you independently of anyone else can somehow produce something of worth and value and that broadly speaking, that's almost never true. Yeah, because someone at least has to receive it. Yeah. What do you think it is that leaders need to hear or understand to value collaboration more? Or is it the case that they already value it, they just don't know what to do? What I can say is this, so like if you're working on on a mega title, you know, you're working on the next Bioshock or whatever, and uh, next Fallout, Fallout London, everyone, by the time you get to that point in the series, I would imagine everyone is terrified 
You've had some of the biggest wins in the industry ever. You've come out later with other versions that have utterly annoyed your fan base. Maybe you were able to keep, you know, pumping, pumping the chest like with, with Fallout 76. But, but when you're releasing that next title, the, the market has already been un, unforgiving to you. And so now you're even more incentivized to micromanage because just think of that as like if you have if you have six or seven million users, let's just think of that as six or seven million individual KPIs that you now feel are weighing you down. Mm-hmm. And part of what makes some of those early games or people like I like the early ones in the series, it was because they were making them. They were building those games with little or no external pressure. Yeah. The size of the team is not part of this. The size of the budget isn't part of this. So with at Turner Construction, I had teams of hundreds of people doing projects that were worth more than $2 billion who were able to collaborate just fine. The issue is, do you have the wherewithal when you start the project to make a conscious and determined decision that says, we are going to go through this project in a way that releases high quality product by making sure that we make the most of the talent that we have in the room. And then when you flip it around like that, that the talent isn't, you're not hiring the talent to magically create something, but you're going to build a system now that runs on that talent and you can't run that talent dry. You can't do the Vancouver EA stories to them anymore. You have to like let them go have Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And the complexity that we're building into the product isn't what the customer wants, right? Say that again, explain that more. Yeah, so like right now, I know for a fact that Bethesda Soft or MicroThesda or whatever we want to call them now, that they're going crazy trying to smash as much new cool tech that will stretch that Xbox X to its limit in in the next version of uh, Fallout, in Fallout London. What I'm interested in Fallout London is what I was interested in in Fallout 4, which is, can you tell me the longest, best, weirdest, most evolving story and make my participation in it have some, some meaning? But I really don't care how much you've been able to stretch out the Unreal Engine. But they, they're in Super Mario system land. They want to beat their own high scores in refresh rates and pixel counts and, uh, and everything else. And frankly, once you get to 1080p, we might look up every so often and say, wow, that's a pretty screen. But it doesn't mean crap for how the game works. Well, I mean, it, it does mean like with, uh, you know, the new Modern Warfare 2 Call of Duty release that you get to sit there staring at your screen for 17 minutes while you uh, load the shaders. <laughs> Compiling shaders. It's like that bar, they think what that bar represents is prepping all the pretty graphics for me before I play. What it actually resents is me giving less and less of a shit with each passing minute about how good the <laughs> graphics are <laughs> while I wait to play the game. There's something else I thought of when you were saying that, which is how many times have we seen a game that had a sequel and the sequel chose to remove the bad parts of the first game without adding anything. It was like, what we did was we refined and improved this experience. And because again, if if I had a first game and it was successful, but I learned a bunch of things about what didn't, didn't work, 
how often, and for me, it's tough for me to think of an example of that where we actually said like, I slimmed down the game into what made it amazing and I took out the parts that weren't. And instead, to your point, we're always playing plus one, plus two, plus three, plus 10. Look how many pluses I can throw in there. Right, and the answer to that has honestly been probably not since not since Mass Effect 2 or the back-to-back uh, Star Wars games, the, the Sithy games, the Darth Revan games. Those names are escaping me right now. Oh, yeah, Knights of the Republic. Yeah, 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 and... yeah. Those are, like, those are like two examples, I think, of two games that came out close enough to each other on equipment that couldn't handle too much more. Mm-hmm. So the playability of the game is extremely coordinate, and the storyline is... Well, the storyline and then the ability to just keep going on. Yeah. You know, you could, you could even call it an add-on. They're so close. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wrote something. You didn't say this directly, but it was it, it just really came through. I wrote it down. It's, you know, when the stakes feel really high, be cautious as a leader. Mm-hmm. Because it could push you into some behaviors and systems that are actually working against you. Um, you're nope. saying, hey, people might find themselves less willing to collaborate up front. Like if uh, the publisher is yelling at you and saying, hey, we really, really need to beat our high score here, you might easily convince yourself into a system that's super defined or super draconian or... Fight or flight is always an individual act. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good rule of thumb to keep an eye on that. Yeah. And so I'll just, I'll just close with this. This isn't a video game yeah. thing. This was like a... This is like a geeky kid in Nebraska in the 80s game, but uh, there was the Avalon Hill games that I used to play as a kid. In uh, Squad Leader especially, you would have, you'd have different squads that were going into different World War II battles to do various things. And the thing that was always the most important dynamic of that was, was when a squad would break, when its morale would fall to a part where the, mm-hmm. where the squad would break. Mm-hmm. What's happening when we enter into these extremely tense games up, or projects up front is we come in ready to break, if not already broken. Mm. The stress is that high. And so the best way to deal with stress is to share it. <laughs> so... We need to, when, when a situation comes in like that, the group that's going to build the game, and that means all 150 people, not, not the people who have the Lamborghinis, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but all 150 people need to get together and say, how are we as a group of 150 going to organize and going to have each other's backs so that we can build this thing in a reasonable amount of time? And the thing about that is it sounds like it means that it's going to take longer, like you're in the Agile trap. Mm -hmm. But what really happens is up front, you start to eliminate a lot of the overhead that you have in anti-collaborative or non-collaborative systems. So if you have a fully collaborative system, you you have less meetings. The meetings that you do have usually result in something that in value that extends the product. And because you have removed the overhead of reporting and meetings and things like that, because people know you've set up a system to allow people to know, you've shaved 25, 30, 40% of the overhead off of your project. Yeah. So these things are late, not because people aren't working hard enough. They're late because people aren't working together. Yeah. Something, again, see, I was just flipping through the book and it was, you said, if you can actually create, visualize and help people see more easily everything that's going on that's relevant to what they need to do, 
the question when we come together to discuss is no longer what do we know and let's all share what we know. We can kind of take that for granted, actually. That's built into the system. We mm -hmm. already know what we know. What do we do? Yep. And I thought back to meetings I've been in where, I mean, I think of one particular chain on a, we're called a relatively dysfunctional project, where it felt like I went into four or five meetings in a row and it was the same conversation with a slightly different group of people. And it wasn't even that that bothered me. It was that we got to the end of those five meetings in one week or something and nothing had actually been done. We'd all just <laughs> shared a bunch of information and I was so frustrated. We've like kind of talked a lot about the philosophical and some of the practical nuts and bolts of collaboration. Mm -hmm. And we've talked to a lot of leaders over the last like handful of years. And we, we spent some of that time asking people how they felt their collaboration was oh, cool. or how they were doing with collaboration. And we actually stopped asking this question because we found that most people were actually ill-equipped to accurately assess how great or not great their collaboration was. So mm -hmm. most of the time, most leaders in games will tell you, oh, we collaborate well. And then you sort of peel up the hood of the car and yeah. you realize very quickly that that's not actually what's happening. That's right. I'm curious, do you have any tips for a leader who's trying to understand how good are we doing this with an actual useful lens that's not full of bias and whatever? My favorite KPI for whether or not I was successful at standing up a collaborative team is, well, two things. One is, did they do something surprising? Every collaborative team does something that you're just like, holy crap, I didn't see that coming mm -hmm. uh, because they're able to be creative and that creativity is money. It's like serious money. And then the second part of it is, you know, what's your attrition? Mm -hmm. How happy are your people? So when COVID hit, almost every team at Turner called back to the main office and said, what do we do? My team which I'm going to engage in total hubris and call them my team <laughs> at Coney Island without me, because I had already, I had already left. They went into their war room, into their Obeya and said, how do we keep working together? And then they came up with a plan and that plan became the prototype or the basis for the plan for how every project dealt with COVID across all of Turner construction worldwide. The, the collaborative system that we set up was robust enough to deal with any emergency, even a global pandemic. So if your team is routinely running into stupid problems, then you're not collaborating. If your team is routinely missing deadlines, then you're not collaborating. And that's not saying that if you collaborate, they're going to meet your deadlines. It could mean that if you collaborate, they're going to be more honest with you and tell you that your deadlines are full <laughs> of crap. But you as a leader are part of the team and you need to collaborate too. If your team isn't collaborating, that says nothing to me except that you're not paying enough attention to your team. So one of the principles in the collaboration equation, one of the, like the principle number three is you have to give a damn. And giving a damn is giving a damn about the product, the people who are creating the product, the processes by which those are created, what your quality regimen is. If you're a software development team and you have people walking around saying bugs are just part of software, no, they're not. 
you type them, you make them. No bug ever needs to happen. Escaped defects are called escape defects because they escaped. <laughs> and they usually escaped because people were trying to either do the agile thing, so they had a two-week deadline that was like so stressful that they were releasing crappy code all the time, or because the work wasn't properly described or, or discussed up front. And sometimes an appropriate amount of discussion for work, for getting work done the right way, is annoying. I love that. I love that phrase. <laughs> that it's, it's so true, though. I think the reality of overhead is one that groups of people cannot avoid. And, and I love that you just call out, it's going to be annoying sometimes. But the alternative is, is chaos. Mm -hmm. or you try to run without process or without any overhead, without any meetings, without any collaboration, real opportunities for collaboration. And then eventually someone with a different mentality is going to come in and just institute a bunch of rules and start telling everybody what to do. And, and you're going to be worse off, far worse off. Mm -hmm. A good example of this is uh, that, that only takes people a few hours to get is if you go and watch the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, you will see the actors playing the people in Queen get together to record the album Bohemian Rhapsody and in the process pretty much try and kill each other on a daily basis. And it was very annoying uh, to all of them and they were very frustrated and the band almost breaks up a bunch of times. But the, the creative process is sometimes uncomfortable. You know, sometimes you have to sit there and hit that high note over and over and over again in the recording booth until you want to punch Freddie Mercury in the face and you're like, I'm supposed to be a drummer. <laughs> mm -hmm. I really appreciate you taking this angle. And I also appreciate your <laughs> Freddie Mercury example because <laughs> I remember the movie immediately when you brought it up. And, yep. you know, there's people arguing. And I think as a layman watching that, right, mm -hmm. you're like, well, this is a movie about drama and about people who couldn't reconcile their differences. And like, look at how unhinged they get sometimes. And and your interpretation of that was different. You were like, hey, this stuff does happen. It's baked into the cake. And it's actually in that conflict and that conflict resolution, such as it is, is integral to mm -hmm. the nature of collaboration. There's such a lesson, I think, for all of us as leaders, mm -hmm. because I think that discomfort is palpable sometimes we have. And I think as leaders, we often feel like we need to step in and just crush that variance mm -hmm. the second it pops up or like solve it or make the bad, yucky feeling conflict go away. People are arguing, so obviously bad things are happening, right? And I think that what you're saying is like, you actually need to develop a thicker skin with that and a tolerance you to increase the latitude that you provide for that to work itself out because that's part of the system. So uh, in the book, in the very beginning of the book, I talk about this argument that I had with my old boss, John Friganese, where he and I are in a very, very, very milquetoast environment where no one ever argues. And we're swearing at each other and we're yelling and we're going at it and stuff like that. And I could, God rest his soul, uh, I could yell at John Friganese, but I couldn't yell at Mary Weber or a bunch of the other people that I worked with at, at because it wouldn't have been, the dynamic wouldn't have been appropriate. So the nature of conflict between individuals and in a group 
is also very context dependent. So what I would say is that not to like overly state this, but when Riot ran into its bro culture problem, the women who brought that bro culture problem up, having a yelling match with them would not have been appropriate. <laughs> that wouldn't have been a good way to solve that particular problem. So psychological safety, it is a wildly shifting rule set based on a whole bunch of elements of context, which is why it's difficult. It is also why when we're building a visual system or building a, a team working agreement, that we build in visual systems to raise the level of, of just normal psychological safety. So that when something does feel unsafe, the delta between it and everything else is very small, as opposed to no one feels safe doing anything at all, and now I feel incredibly unsafe. And then that delta makes those things easier to surface and talk about even if, so like this delta, this is like the most unscientific thing ever, but this delta might be discomfort this delta might be like life or career threatening. Yeah, and I I think and other folks may not agree with this. It's um, you know, you you start to dip your toes into a rather controversial pool these days, mm -hmm. but I certainly see a trend most of the time in the organizations that we encounter where they are in their attempts to build a more peace-loving culture for lack mm -hmm. of a better phrase, mm -hmm. they are yeah, harmony yeah, is the word we often use. They're moving away from anything that causes any discomfort to the point where like Ben and I have observed situations where we'll actually solicit feedback from a team and be like, how are you guys doing? How do you feel about this? Tell us what's not working about the company for you. And you can tell that like when that angst starts to come to the surface, the managers become immediately uncomfortable. Like, mm -hmm. oh God, how do I make this go away as quickly as possible? Like, how do I pacify this and placate? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a lot of the new energy that we're seeing in companies. And, and I think it's, again, linking it back to the conversation we were having a moment ago, mm -hmm. it does seem like it it sometimes can work against your ability to collaborate. 100%. Because you kind of do, you kind of do need to be able to say something a little bit controversial. And I, I don't mean controversial in the sense of being inappropriate, but I mean, against the grain of the way the direction we're currently going, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the politically correct argument. Yeah. So in one way or another, the culture has come up with a variety of things that the culture can't solve. And so those things become taboo, and then you don't discuss them. And then you get two, two results from that. You get the servant leader result, which is people say, well, I'm going to abdicate my responsibility as a manager or a leader. I'm just going <laughs> to let the team do everything. And then you get the the Trump style punching down where leader, the other leaders who aren't engaged in servant leadership will actively beat the crap out of the teams. And neither of those are particularly healthy. So when I find myself in a situation like that, which is way more often than I wish that I did, where people have existing frustrations and there is a disconnect between people called leaders and the team. The first thing that I do is I re repatriate the leaders. <laughs> Say, you know, the island of team would like to talk to you again. Uh, and then they come in and they, they're part of the whatever event that we're doing. 
then we surface those things that are frustrating, but we do that in a way, we use a value stream map to do that. So we'll map out the value stream of like, what is the work that the team is doing? Step one, step two, step three, blah, 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 blah. Step by step, what happens? Then we'll start to identify where there are bottlenecks or frustrations in that flow of work. This gives people the ability to vent in a systematic way, in a logical way. So it's no longer like, I feel this and I feel that. It's more like when I get to this step in the process, I can't get my work done. So then I have to do these other 10 things to work around the bureaucratic, you know, nodule that you've, you've, you've put in my way. We find that when we're able to get to externalize those conversations, none of this huggy, I feel this and I feel that, but more of the actual practical look, <laughs> I don't feel this, it's really happening and we can fix it. So let's just fix it and let's stop freaking out about it. And the problem with that is that any team, like right now, if you're listening to this and you hire me, I'm going to have to come in and work with your team for like a full week <laughs> to do this, right? It, it takes time to get people to get into that collaborative role. And then after that, to do something productive with that collaborative role. There was a, uh, you defined learned helplessness. Yep. And I think is that that when that happens, right? Like when everybody ends up in a place of learned helplessness. And I liked your definition of it. Mm -hmm. Like you, I think you said, what is it? Learned helplessness isn't simply giving up. It's the result of realistically assessing no-win situations and realizing that action will yield no or negative results. Mm -hmm. In an anti-collaborative environment, acting with confidence is dangerous, which means that professionalism is dangerous. Yeah. Bogart, I don't stick my neck out for nobody. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, I think that also, the other thing that that does is it, in I think chapter four, you talk about the our tendency to blame instead of solve. Mm -hmm. And both of these have at their fundamental unit the individual, mm -hmm. right? The individual learns that actually I need to look out for myself because no one else is going to, certainly not the system. Mm hmm and so I've successfully assessed the no-win situation and realized uh, the best I can do is just deal with all the dysfunction, mm -hmm. not attempt to solve it. And when we're all in that state, then other people's work, I think it was the, um, the 12 product managers story and the, the database group team at the center and how, how quickly everybody went to, you kind of did a sequence of visualizations because at first everybody's just blaming everybody else for everything that's wrong. And it's like, well, my team is doing our best and it's their fault. And everybody believed that their team was the most important. Every leader felt that their team was the most important. And then through a sequence of visualizations, you got them to the point where they could no longer just blame a different group. Mm -hmm. And I, I think of that value stream map as that other thing. It's like, this is what's happening. This is what's happening in the system. Can we fix the system, please? Mm -hmm. Not like, well, it's obviously Jenny's fault or Ted's fault or something like Instead, it's focus on the actual thing we can do. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how that becomes so disincentivized, how that becomes so not where you're supposed to go. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to talk. You know, the, it's the emperor has no clothes. We're not supposed to talk about it. Nobody say anything. Mm -hmm. And that and it's just like that's the natural state, though, of so many organizations. Yeah, it's uh, cyberpunk could probably write you 50 novels. Mm. 
from the release of the release of a product where it had known issues and those known issues for a variety of internal reasons that I have absolutely no insight into uh, were were ignored. But it wasn't a surprise when it was released in an unusable state. And that to me just screams horrible psychological safety playhouse right there. Right. You know? Right. And uh, yeah, and again, I mean, I've seen so many other games of equal complexity that have come out just fine. So there was, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say there was a collaborative breakdown there. Yeah. So visualization, valuable tool, honestly, became a lot harder in the remote world mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Used to have our, our team all sitting next to each other, just had a wall next to the team and I could put a bunch of stuff up over there. Yep. A little bit different now. How do you think about visualization? How do you make visualization effective for the groups and teams you work with? Well, so the first thing that happens when there is a flood or a forest fire or any other disaster, first responders are deployed. They form an operations center for the management of that particular project. The things that they use for the management center are on screen, on walls, on everything else. But it's in that it's in that room. And in my early career, I got to build uh, several of those and it kills me. Basically, that's what I'm still doing. <laughs> it's just that when you have like a super focus, like, like, oh, my God, the cascades are on fire. That makes people jump into action and say, yeah, I'll put things on a wall. When things just feel like a project, they're like, oh, you know, I'd rather have that conference room for coffee. And, and this is just like, for this audience especially, there are very few, very, very few audio-only or text-only games. Mm. So every game has graphics. Even if you're playing Dungeons & Dragons, people still have the little pewter figurines and stuff, and, and, you, and you have a map, and you're doing things, you know, that you can see. So we can better manage work that we can see. So Kanban is one way to manage your work, but there are many, many, many different ways to manage different situations. So again, if you're having like some sort of large project and you've run into a problem, there's a bottleneck, there's an area that just the, the bugs just will not come undone, uh, the, there's a, a kink in your process somewhere, you can't get the voiceovers to come in right or whatever, those things can and should be visualized. They should be turned into some sort of a game where you can see the status. You can see triggers for action. Just stop me if you haven't heard this before, because these are all gaming fundamentals. So when I teach people in, in management that when you build a visual control, it needs to have a bunch of different uh, things in it. They go into every single game, mm -hmm. you know, every HUD or, or what, what have you uh, has them in them. So you want you want triggers. You want something that tells you where you're at in the story versus your plan mm -hmm. and where you're at in the story versus the way that your plan has changed. So, you know, a simple version of that in a game might be I'm going down one skill tree. I get past, you know, I've done this planet and I've moved to the other planet. And all of a sudden I recognize that just shooting isn't going to get this. I'm going to need to be able to jump in different ways. So I will either reapportion those skills or whatever, but I have that visual to show me what's possible, what's happening, and where I'm at right now. 
And the other thing about that is that if you're doing any kind of a collaborative game, you know, regardless of what game it is, there are always tools in there to alert you of what's happening with your other players, right? So even something as simple as League of Legends, you got the dots, you know where your people are. Yeah. You know, yeah, you're, you're talking to them over the comms, but you can still see where they're at. And that's really important. If you're lining up a shot, if you're doing a pincer move, if you're doing whatever, work is no different. Mm-hmm. So if there's one industry that should just be in love with setting up an Obeya, which is a single room where all the information is that your team needs to get their job done, it should be this one. <laughs> well, we've covered a lot in this one. I want to quickly summarize and then give you a chance to plug anything you'd like to plug. For our quick summary related to collaboration, first thing, make a conscious and determined effort upfront to build collaboration into your approach and your org. Regardless of where your studio is, regardless of where you're at, if you don't do this, it will all be non-deliberate. It will be accidental. It probably won't work very well. Number two, make a commitment within the leadership team to get the most out of the talent on your teams. This isn't just, hey, we hired some people, their names on a spreadsheet. This is how do we help them succeed. Number three, the best way to deal with stress is actually to share it. Everyone needs to agree to get each other's backs and coordinate their efforts. It's important to be sharing information, letting other people know where you're at, where you're trying to go. Number four, always visualize your work as an imperative. Number five, the machine, as it were, does not naturally include collaboration. It's not something we do intuitively, even as we want to. Assume that the people around you have not been taught to do this or know what it looks like. You have to teach them collaboration. Number six, value the team over the individual. Remember that the team is the smallest value-producing unit, not the individual. Number seven, build incentives that guide people on how to collaborate and how not to collaborate. Number eight, be careful when the stakes feel really high and how you and everyone else may emotionally react to that. It will creep into your approach in ways you don't want. Jim? Anything you want to send our our listeners towards? Okay. So thank you all for having me. I, I really appreciate this. Uh, this is, I adore this conversation. <laughs> and the big reason is because, again, you guys have come out of a very collaborative background. And so the questions that you've been asking have been just a joy to answer. They've all been, they've all been out of the ordinary. So two things that I'd like to say is just uh, the first, you know, is obviously, you know, buy the book, Collaboration Equation. It's on Amazon. The second thing is that uh, my business partner, Tony Ann, and I, we love working with groups that are either just forming (laughs) or are in trouble (laughs) or are not in trouble, but just want to get better. And uh, we would love to come back and work more in the gaming. The other thing I'll note is that at modusinstitute.com, that's M-O-D-U-S institute.com, We have an online school, but also an online community where there's lots of conversations and classes that you can take around these ideas and topics. And so we would love to see you there as well. Did you enjoy this content? Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Join game developers around the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at www.buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. 
Again, that's www.buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Thanks for listening.